Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleagues. Yulia Zoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and... Dali Borohach, also with AEI. On this podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along a line which runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea the Eastern Front, and about why those are important to the United States. Our guest today is Phillips O'Brien, who teaches at the University of St. Andrews. He's a historian, and he's also a columnist for The Atlantic, or at least a regular contributor, and has now uh, started his own Substack, uh, which I commend to everybody. Uh, Phil's been one of the most assiduous and uh, constant analysts of the Russo-Ukrainian War, uh, so um, I've been trying to get him on the podcast now for some time and finally succeeded. Phil, uh, today we're going to talk about the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive a little bit and then broaden out the conversation. You have written Counseling Patience uh, on that, but uh, you're also, uh, I think, have uh, hopeful expectations of what this campaign may produce. Why don't you bring us up to speed on what your current thinking is and uh, help our audience understand how they should think about the counteroffensive that they've been hearing about uh, for about 25 years now. Sure. I mean, it, 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 it's fascinating to see the immediate assumptions that somehow the Ukrainians would slice through Russian lines like butter and drive to the, to the Black Sea coast or something like that. What Ukraine is trying to do is, I mean, and this word is often overused, but it's close to unprecedented in modern war. They are trying to launch an offensive without the control of the air, with none of the normal elements that you would normally think would go into a successful offensive against an enemy that's had months to dig in, that actually has, I don't know if they use them, but better technology in terms of aircraft, has a lot of artillery, a lot of handhelds. Uh, and you know, this would normally, you'd say, that this offensive would have no chance of success. I mean, certainly, you would. the United States would never fight because they'd always have control of the air. On the one hand, it was very weird the way people were assuming it, it, it would go. Now, what has happened, I think, is that the Ukrainians, to begin with, did test the Russian lines. And some of that worked well, some of that worked less well. Um, yeah, that, that They did certainly press with some of their, um, yeah, they've trained up a number of these brigades for offensive action. They deployed a few of them at different points along the lines. They made small advances. They also lost some of their units. And it was clear that you know the Russian lines aren't going to melt away, that they're there. So after a few days of that, when that became understood, I think what the Ukrainians have done is gone, as actually President Zelensky said two days ago, they're in a destruction mode, that you know, they can't control the air, they can't necessarily go forward. Uh, easily. So all they can do is destroy the Russians around them and weaken them enough that eventually they will find a weak point in the line. Um, and that's why it's you, you've got you've got to give it time. What seems to happen is they're going to, you know, they're not only weakening the Russians in the line, they're now starting to go once again after their depots. I mean, a lot of this war has been about what range the Ukrainians have. So if you look back last summer when they got the HIMARS, they basically wiped out almost every large Russian depot within HIMARS range. Well, what did the Russians do? They moved all these depots just outside of HIMARS range, where they've been sitting there for six months, happily mostly protected, 
now the Ukrainians can hit some of that because they have storm shadows and actually some of their own homegrown thrones. So my guess is we're going to go in this period of, of wastage as the Ukrainians both go after the forces in front of them, but also try to cut the supplies. I mean, they did go very interestingly yesterday. They hit that bridge from Crimea to the mainland. So they're really trying to isolate the Russian army supply line. And that's the way they will try to eventually go forward, is simply weaken the Russians so much that the Russian army, which is, I think we can all say, an imperfect beast. This is not what you'd say a, a, a high motivation, excellent command and control force. It's got a lot of weapons, but it's also got serious deficiencies that they can weaken it enough that they will have a chance to go forward. I think on the whole, they've shown that adaptability during the war. They did last um, last sort of summer fall with what they did with Kherson, Kharkiv, and then back to Kherson. You know, that, that whole campaign last summer, fall, took three months. You know, from when they started pressing at Kherson to when the Russians pulled out of Kherson, with Kharkiv in the middle, it took three months. So I don't know why after two weeks people are going, oh my gosh, they haven't won the war. Well, that I mean, just to, if I uh, could exercise the uh, moderator's prerogative, uh, your last point I think is especially well taken. People sort of turned last year into the sort of blitzkrieg beast, which it really wasn't. Um, I mean, I don't know exactly what the Ukrainian high command, supreme command decision-making process was, but yeah, no, they announced that they were going to go for Kherson. They got, you know, again, a little bit of progress, but were essentially blunted. Uh, and then everybody, then they pivoted to the north, to Kharkiv, had huge success, and then, and then did return to Kherson, which was sort of the capper in many ways, the, at least sort of in the, uh, you know, political and propaganda uh, dimensions of the war was a huge you know, it felt more like and was presented as a moment of liberation, even in a way that the the, the retaking of land in the north uh, was not. Hmm. So, you know, if anything, they're staying true to form. And yeah, it, it's it, again, it is, you know, we who have a hard time seeing them correctly, whether you're uh, you know, sort of a, a Russia stooge mm -hmm. or a, a Ukrainian uh, enthusiast, shall we say. The gap between the battlefield reality and the way we think about it has, has never been, uh, you know, that narrow. No, no, and you're exactly right, Giselle. The bringing up Kharkiv is a fascinating one. Kharkiv is the most deceptive battle in the sense that there just weren't any Russian troops there. Remember, the line last year was twice as long as it is now. Because, I mean, if you take out the Dnipro parts, which really limit what Ukraine can do, the Russians had to defend a whole landline in Kherson, and they had this very long landline that went up almost to the city of Kharkiv. They simply didn't staff it well, and when the Ukrainians hit Kharkiv, they hit mostly an empty bag. So the Russians had one line, they had no multiple lines of defense, and once the Ukrainians got three, there was nothing to stop them. Uh, and I think that gave people a very false idea of how fast-moving this war was going to be. I mean, that was just simply luck. Not to say luck, the Ukrainians actually seemed to... Uh, I've heard sort of some conflicting narratives. One of them was 
they just adjusted on the fly. They attacked in Kherson. It was really hard to go forward. They said, okay, you know, we're not going to batter our heads against the wall. We'll cut the bridges and starve them out this way and try and do something else. And they found Kharkiv was really poorly defended and, and, and hit Kharkiv. But I wouldn't take Kharkiv that as any indication of what this war is. They'll never be so fortuitous again, so lucky to find a place with so few defenders. And that, that's not going to happen. So they're going to have to create their own Kharkiv. And that will be by, by whittling the Russians down. But that's entirely right. Get that out of your head. Think more what happened in Kherson last summer. And and we also know that Kherson was pretty bloody, right? Um, and a lot of speculation is around that. But I, I want to go one more minute into this wrong perception that you're talking about. And, and you do that in writing. I was just reading you a bit earlier too, to point out on your excellent Substack, to point out um, that how short our memory is compared to last year. And of course, we can't expect people to be, you know, World War II military experts. But then... Um, Why not? Then, it seems so reasonable. <laughs> so, so much of our audience is, right? <laughs> By now, they've been forced to become that. Um, but, but, but why is it then um, that we have, th that it's you and others who must be out there combating something that is now across mainstream Western media, the counteroffensive is failing. I mean, I understand that to some extent this is Russian disinformation, but it cannot be all. So is it that we are, we have, gotten used to being so fickle? Is it the same scenario of we never thought the Ukrainians would be able to take anything? Um, how do you explain our kind of mass misperception and misunderstanding so early in the counteroffensive when it's now common knowledge that the counteroffensive couldn't have started much earlier, Zelensky has explained that too, and that it can only last until the mud season. There's so many points there, Yulia, that, that are great. The first one is the reporting of the war doesn't report the important things in terms of the progress of the war. What it tends to be based around is anecdote. We've talked to this wounded mm. soldier. We've talked to this injured commander. Um, they're exhausted. Ukrainian troops are worn. This kind of narrative. But there's no way to say, well, what's, how does this fit into the bigger picture? So we were hearing this a lot about Bakhmut. I mean, you weren't reading a good story about the Ukrainian resistance at Bakhmut for months. It was all, this is miserable, this is horrible, they're losing mass numbers of people. It's a stupid thing, but there was no larger attempt to sort of say, okay, what is the purpose of this campaign? And actually, Bakhmut, I think, was probably the, the toughest but best choice the Ukrainians made, because they got a lot of pressure to pull out of Bakhmut, um, but actually they were right to fight there. Um, because that has severely limited the amount of extra forces the Russians now have available. If the Russians had another 50,000, 60,000 soldiers, it would be very hard um, this summer to make any kind of real progress, I would, I would say. So that, that was a huge thing. And in fighting in Bakhmut, as an example, the Ukrainians didn't use any of the forces they're going to use in this counteroffensive. So it was, you know, the soldiers that had to fight there had a horrible time. But strategically, that was the right way. But it was never portrayed that way until the end. 
It only was portrayed that way when actually, well, people, so the U.S. intelligence says the Russians have lost 100,000 soldiers in six months and half of them in Bakhmut. People are like, oh, okay, now that sort of makes sense. Now, what has been the, the reporting on the counteroffensive? Well, the reporting has been based on about five pictures of the same groups of tanks. Two leopards were destroyed. Two, oh, my God. Two leopards were destroyed. A, a number of APCs. The advances on the line of the map weren't huge. You know, I think the largest penetration looks to be about five miles, though actually from what we know, there might be farther than that that Ukrainians just aren't reporting it. But it, it tends not to be what really matters in war. I mean, I have a very boring functional view of war. War is about the destruction and regeneration of force. I don't care about a village. I really couldn't care about a village, this village. or They've taken this village, who cares? What matters is what is it doing to the future course of the power of the two armies? And, and in what direction is it going? But that's not easy to report. No one has actually written to what I think is the most important story of this war. Tell me what Russia manufacturing is now. Try and tell me how many tanks can they make? How many APCs can they make? What is their artillery stocks? What, are, you know, what, what, what is their drone production? All of that would be a far more important story about how this war will develop than the intense fighting for the village of this or the village of that. I think there's something about you know human psychology that, that sort of shapes these these narratives that we, you know, we were waiting for the offensive, then finally the offensive got underway, and and so there is this thirst for a story that will be satisfying and that it will sort of unfold like in a in a movie, and and I think that's where the sort of political leadership comes into play, and and people who have to explain and shape expectations so that then two weeks in people don't turn away, lose interest, or become 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 disappointed. If I can ask you a question um, related to something you, you said at the very beginning about uh, about the Ukrainian counteroffensive, namely um, the the lack of Ukrainian air power. So so if you if you could just speculate a little bit on how much of a constraint that has been for for Ukrainian progress in this counteroffensive and how different would things look on the ground if you know we had our F sixteen conversation nine months earlier than, than we've actually had it. Uh, again, that's uh, yeah, that's the, the ultimately frustrating thing. Every, you know, the F-16s are going to come. They're going to come far too late. So they'll be, they'll be flying the F-16s Christmas, New Year's, sometime around then, but they won't be flying them this summer. What the, the, the lack of air power in this means two things. Well, normally air power provides protection to your forces as they go forward because you could do combat patrol, you know, you could, you could control the area in front. Now drones can do that a little bit, but they're not as effective as sort of constant fixed wing aircraft patrolling over. But it also means that you, the Russia, if, if the Ukrainians had air supremacy, the Russians wouldn't be having these Ka-52s popping up all the time, which actually is one of their most effective systems. They wouldn't be able to have their artillery quite as much. That's a helicopter. Just for our, our less technical audience, that's a it's a big-ass helicopter. It's an attack helicopter, and it's one. Now, the Russians are losing a lot of them, if the Ukrainian claims are right, but they've also been very effective of, of going forward. I mean, this got me a little bit in trouble at the start of the war when I wrote one of my Atlantic columns where people said, yeah, I said the tank was obsolete, and I said, no, I didn't say the tank was obsolete. The tank is just really vulnerable. It's a very vulnerable system. It might look fast on World of Tanks, but it's by the things in the battlefield today, the tank is slow. 
it's slow and easy to hit. Um, and you know, the, the people have a false idea. You, you, there has not been a single armored breakthrough in this war. And the reason is, I would argue, is there's no air supremacy to provide that kind of... The Russians weren't able to do it when they had all their aircraft. The Ukrainians are flying bad, such bad aircraft. I mean, they're trying very hard with these refurbished MiG-29s, but the MiG-29 is a pretty pedestrian aircraft to, to base your air power. So if they had air supremacy, this would be a very different, very different offensive. But they don't have it, and they're not going to have it. So it's not going to be there this summer. Um, so I think we have to look for a very different campaign based on the fact of weakening the Russians so much that the Russian resistance provides. So with, um, uh, in, for the sake of managing expectations, you've done an amazing yep. job so far, um, but managing expectations looking into the next few weeks and months, with what mm. the Ukrainians have and, of course, don't have, um, are you expecting um, significant territorial gains, liberations, or not? What do you think is possible for them to achieve this summer? I, I do expect a significant advance at some point somewhere. I'm not entirely sure where it's going to be. At some point, the Russians are going to actually have trouble manning this long line because Russian losses have been so high and they were so high in places like Bakhmut, and the line is still long. It's not as long as it was, but it's still a long line. The Ukrainians should eventually find a weak point. My guess is that's what they're looking for now, because what have we not seen? We've not seen about 80 to 85% of the forces built up for this event. From everything you know, I've heard from people who are more in the know in Ukraine than myself, maybe 15 to 20% of these brigades have, have appeared actually on the line. So the vast majority of Ukrainian strength is being held back because I think they've realized if they send it forward against a really well-held line, it doesn't matter how good it is, it's not gonna break through. So will something happen in the next two weeks? No, will it happen by the end of July? That would be, I think, my guess. Second half of July, they should be able to find somewhere um, to make some kind of advances particularly if they do what they seem to be doing now, which is refocusing back on logistics to really start starving the Russians of equipment and supplies and, and to do that. But people just have to relax for a few weeks. I mean, the good thing is that what happens in public opinion in the short term doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, people can, there was a big wobble in public opinion last May. I don't know if people remember that. Where people, oh, you know, the Ukrainians aren't gonna win, the, the Russian steamroller is there and that this war won't go on. A short-term blip won't matter. What won't, what will matter is if at the end of the year it seems like a quagmire. So if Ukraine wins something that is seen as a, a, a tangible victory by the end of the summer, that will that will be what matters. We, we've, I don't know, Giselle, if you and I have ever talked about it. U.S. public opinion is a little different than often people think. Americans like to think they care about things like casualties. They don't really. This is a Peter Fever, uh, Peter's one eternal insight, which is exactly correct. You know, winning is good, okay? <laughs> That's what they back. So part of the reasons the, the, the backing for Ukraine has remained so solid, and by the way, is that the Ukrainians look like they have a way to win. Well, so that's why I want to, I want to push back on, you know, we've got the Vilnius summit coming up in the middle of July. You just sort of projected the point of potential inflection past 
mm-hmm. bad. So, you know, they're, they're competing. Battlefield patients, operational patients versus strategic urgency. It's a, the summit is a big deal for the future of yeah. Ukraine, not just, you know, in this year's campaign, but the long-term prospects for uh, Ukrainian independence and security uh, are beginning to come into focus. And there's, there's, you know, overcoming the Ukraine can't join NATO until it's whole and free and independent and safe. And, and uh, we don't really have to worry about it. Uh, you know, there's no divided Germany solution uh, for Ukraine, or at least many people such as the Germans, hypocritically, sort of, you know, and you can't tell whether they just assert that narrative, believe in that narrative, want that narrative, whatever. But I I can imagine that for President Zelensky and his senior commanders, there's, you know, and considering that their available force to throw at the problem is, you know, lacking uh, in... Uh, uh, air cover and sub, you know they could use more long range strike to be sure. So, you know, that is a very devilish proposition for for Zelensky and his immediate circle. And the big and the big thing, as you say, Giselle, is actually probably more American opinion. We talk about Vilnius, but what is interesting is that the I don't know. It's actually it'd be interesting to hear from you all how the European debate is being transmitted to the United States. Because the European discussion of this is not, I think, what Americans would have expected before. That the hardcore who wants Ukraine to win, and that is win, that is retake Crimea, are about 10 states in northern and central and eastern Europe. And they are more committed to Ukraine than the United States, than France and Germany. That, that you know, this is the Finns, the Swedes, the Norwegians, the Danes, the Baltics, the Poles, the Czechs, the Romanians, who, by the way, are gearing up for a long-term aid to Ukraine. Yeah, they're, they're, gear, they're getting ready to give Ukraine, you know, Denmark, the Netherlands, whatever they want. They don't, you know, if, if, there's not, if there's not going to be an advance by Vilnius, their support for Ukraine isn't going to be affected at all. And hence, putting pressure on Vilnius by by flaunting, right, by what Rasmussen was saying the other week, maybe we will send troops to Ukraine. By the way, that's something, small parentheses here, that, that Dalibor and I heard last June already in Kiev when we were visiting. So yes, the commitment is there. But excellent point. If, if, if I may just j- jump in quickly on, on, on the Vilnius question. So, so one thing that struck me as really extraordinary has been this transformation in in the French debate, starting from Macron's. Oh, Delabor, you're, you're such a sucker <laughs> for Macron. No, 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 Actually, actually, <laughs> okay. I have a very, I have very cynical read of. of oh, of, good. Of I'm looking forward to this, which one. I'll sort of say for my column. Uh, but but there was also a report by Le Monde uh, two three days ago on how there has been a very detailed discussion at the Elysee about what would a sort of path towards Ukraine's membership in NATO look like? And so, so what's, what's your read on, on this, what seems superficially as, as President Macron's sudden change of heart on the subject? Uh, I, you know, I th- again, I have, a, I have a sort of cynical story to, to tell about that, but I wonder what your take is. I'm not an expert on French politics um, or what Macron is thinking. 
it does seem to me that there was a there's been a tension in French policy throughout the war, and it, it maybe is going in one way. Now, what is the tension? The tension is between France being a power and France being a leader of Europe. And those have actually clashed, because what the French realize is when Macron goes to China, we'll set a deal, we'll have Paris and Beijing and Washington sit down. Well, you know, Helsinki thinks that's a bad idea, and Warsaw thinks that's a bad idea. And that threatened France's position in Europe. I mean, it really threatened French leadership. And they were saying, well, if that's your view, Macron, if you want to settle this war with the Chinese, go off, do your thing. We're going to do what we're going to do. And I think the French were in, in real danger of losing influence as a European player at that point. And what we've seen is a pivot more towards the position of the Nordics and the Central Europeans who are driving a lot. And by the way, they're the ones who've driven American policy. Why do you think they're both Abrams and F-16s, Abrams there and F-16s on the way? It's basically because a lot of these states said, we're giving them. Um, you you order us not to, or we're going to give them. So I think that was the tension. That, I mean, that, that ultimately the French did make probably the wise choice, which is it's better to try and be a leader of Europe than the leader of an irrelevant medium-sized power. France's only real authority is as a leader in Europe. So I think that's been, it's been pivoting towards the European consensus. Right now, most European states would have Ukraine and NATO as soon as if you did. Not, not most, but certainly European NATO states, I would say, again, there's now, what, 14 or 15 who have endorsed the idea of Ukraine and NATO. Um, and if France opposes that, well, you know, maybe they get kudos in Beijing, but they certainly lose a lot of their influence in Europe. And that's the tension. That I Moreover, my sort of like cynical element in, in this is that in Paris, they might be thinking for good reasons that the Biden administration is not going to deliver the goods at the Vilnius summit. And so if Americans say no, or if Americans sort of water down the language, then there is really no cost in the French pretending that they really want Ukraine to join at the earliest opportunity. It just buys them goodwill in Eastern Europe uh, and doesn't really commit them to anything. And I don't really think that Macron's thinking on ultimately on Ukraine's membership has changed. It's just, you know, these reasons that you sort of outline. I second that and I, I have even more mm, skepticism, but let's not go into the details. I do want to want to now cross the Atlantic for a moment and ask you, Phil, what about Biden and NATO and Ukraine? Because that comment, I thought, and maybe you can explain to us how that fits into public opinion in the United States. Oh, we will not um, give Ukraine an easy pass into NATO, for God's sake. I mean, it's everything but that. What, what was behind that? I don't know. I mean, this is one of the, you hear stories. But again, you probably know what's going on. You hear stories that the administration has got different voices. And one of the voices has been consistently fury, uh, fearful of escalation. I mean, this is, and by the way, the Ukrainians say that all the time. The Ukrainians have sort of one bet noir who I won't say it is, but they're convinced that there's sort of one voice. Jake, that, Jake, I, Jake. I, 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 <laughs> um, you'll have to ask the Ukrainians to speak for themselves, Giselle. But um, but that that, that that there is actually one voice, um, and maybe actually joined with some voices in the Pentagon that have been very, very fearful of escalation. I think maybe people thought after the F-16 decision, okay, they've given up, but obviously they're back. I mean, what was interesting is the return of that rhetoric 
So I don't I don't know where that came from. It was surprised as I agree. I think it was a surprisingly negative statement that he didn't need to make. And it might have been one that he didn't understand fully what he was saying when when he said it. Uh, it didn't go over well amongst Ukraine's friends in Europe. But you tell me when when what's your what's all your take on what's going on in the administration? Uh, we we haven't we haven't got that much time. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save that for the next. You, therapy you come session. back. You come back to our to yeah. our podcast and we'll talk some more. Well, yeah, well, yeah. But uh, in the in the time that we have, I would like to pivot to this sort of what has been really a, a structural, you'd have to say at this point, mystery in terms of analysis of Russian power, uh, misanalysis of Ukrainian strength that existed prior to the war. I mean, I can remember suggesting that maybe, I mean, it's always a safe bet to say, that any war is not going to turn out according to plan, especially one that lasts longer than 10 minutes. Uh, but the the level of confidence in Russian strength and especially sort of the reforms that the Russian military had made in the previous 10 or 20 years or however long you want to put on it had, had really transformed at least elements of the Russian military into a first-class uh, organization. Um, that none of them, none of that i mean zero of that materialized and yet still uh, the myth of russian martial might uh, persists you've engaged with this a lot i think you're uh, now sort of trying to study this in a more comprehensive way can you give us uh, the early takeaways that you well giselle you know you know we're trying to yes well and you you've strategy, got yeah. right? you've been around the table <laughs> now that i'm out strategy. of the room i'm wondering what's up but um never mind uh but you've been on that you've been on this you've been on this since before possibly before day one or let, let me ask you did you see this miscalculation coming well the only reason i'm speaking to you now is because of that i mean and it wasn't that I knew, but I was just so confused by why people were saying Russia was powerful. I mean, it made no sense by any normal analysis of power and military capability that people would think the Russian that Russia was powerful and that the Russian military would be great. And that's really why I'm here, because I started saying that in January of 2022, and sort of saying, why are people saying this? It makes no sense. I think there's a few fundamental questions we need to ask ourselves. One is we have to have a fundamental rethink of power. In other words, we had what I would call a weapon-centric analysis of power. And it was very hard power, but it was based on numbers of weapons. Or what an individual, this tank is a really good tank. This aircraft is a really good aircraft. Um, and that you know, the weapons are what made the power. But in neither case do they look at the fundamentals of the system that created the weapons. And really, if you're looking at powers, great power, true great powers, in fact, in many ways, I think we need to throw the great power phrase out. Great power is a stupid phrase because there are only a very few great powers. I'd call them full spectrum power. Russia was never a great power. It couldn't be. It has the economy the size of Spain. I mean, and Spain's a lovely country. But you know, if you gave Spain a lot of tanks, you would not say this is a great power. Hey, if it were the 16th century, you wouldn't mess with them, right? But then they would have had the largest GDP in Europe. 
And the, you would have dealt okay. with, yeah, and, and you, by the way, some of the best marine technology, they would have actually been an economic technological leader. Russia was not an economic technological leader by any means. I mean, how many Russian high-tech goods do you own? Yeah. <laughs> and on the other hand, again, even more weirdly, people assumed the system didn't matter much. I mean, this is what, I have a lot of bugbears with realism, you know, realists. But the, the, one of the biggest is that system, you know, power is power and states behave the way they are regardless of the leaders. Well, that's not true. <laughs> the kind of leadership and the kind of political system you have in place makes a massive difference in how you accumulate and act with power. It's, there's no one way states act. So I, I think there, there, there needs to be a, a breaking down and a reassessment of what matters in power. Um, now, I'm hoping to have a, an article about this soon, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you know if that's coming out. And then after that, we have to do the same thing about war, because I think there's also, a f basically, we had what I'll call the high school boys war gamer view of war, where war is about the kinetic meeting, the battle, and the battle decides. The United States has not lost a battle in 80 years. How many wars is it? We're, War is a process, and it's a constant process of generation of loss, regeneration, supply, political decision-making. The battle actually doesn't matter in the way that we think the battle matters. But so much of this was made up. When the Russian army meets the Ukrainian army, the Russians will just, and then that will be it. Well, when has that ever happened? Um, so I think, you know, I know this sounds sort of like probably pretty big, but we, we have fundamental flaws in how we looked at power and war. And we have to be willing to go through both of those questions. And that's partly the project that I'm working on, as you know. So. Well, we'll let you get back to work. It was great to, to finally snag you for this. Uh, don't think that this lets you off the hook, that you can go about a summer a summer vacation. Or, well, the last time I saw you was actually on a plane. You were uh, I was going to the very back row, there. and you were sitting comfortably in some sort of spacious seat. That's what I, I was in premium premium economy. It was not... <laughs> no, no, oxy, no, there's nothing oxymoronic about premium economy. Let, let me in. And let me say in final departure, one word about Russian technology and also Czech technology. If you're looking for an old yeah. World War tube, tube for your old World War II style tube amp, there's only two places you can get them. And now that Russian factories are sanctioned. There's only one factory in the Czech Republic that still produces old vacuum tubes of uh, reliable durability. So if you have an amp or a Spitfire or something along those lines, uh, you know, we need, we need to keep these, these factories humming one way or another. Uh, okay, on that rather random note, uh, we'll sign off. Phillips O'Brien, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges which have arisen along a line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at AEI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever in this universe you get your podcasts. Please do be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, 
and reviewing us. So uh, for me, Giselle Donnelly and... Julia Joja and... Dali Burhaj. Goodbye for now, and we'll see you next time.